Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So again, Matthew chapter 28, uh, and we'll begin reading in verse 16. And the word of the Lord reads, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, together teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. The late founder of Campus Crusades for Christ and the author of the um, book Four Spiritual Laws, Bill Bright once wrote, there is no greater calling or greater privilege known to man than being involved in helping fulfill the Great Commission. One of the greatest promises in all of Christianity is the promise that God will be with us. That we are really never alone that we are not forgotten, that we are not forsaken, that we are not abandoned, and we are not isolated. In fact, Jesus said himself that he will be with us. That's what it says in the text. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And this is a promise that if you are a Christian, if you are somebody who has trusted Christ, if you are a real follower of Jesus, it's a promise that you have held on to and continue to hold on to. This is a promise that you have leaned on. It's a promise that should give you and bring you great comfort, especially when times are tough, especially when things in the world don't make sense or when everything seems lost around you or when it seems like everyone else in your life has abandoned you. This promise is the rock-solid foundation of our hope, the promise that God who created all of the universe, Christ himself, will be with you. And so if you are a believer, you hold on to this promise. You, you cherish the truth of this promise. You, you lean into it and you lean on to it that Jesus is with you in all circumstances wherever you go. Because it's, it's the truth. Jesus, God in the flesh, is with his people. And, and we should rejoice in that and, and always take deep comfort in that fact. But the thing that you and I need to understand is that this particular promise of Jesus that he makes here in Matthew to be always with us, this promise actually has a context. See, Jesus didn't simply just say this in isolation without something else. He didn't say, you know what, I just want you guys to know. I just want to remind you that no matter what happens and no matter where you go, no matter what you do, I'm going to be with you. Right? No, he didn't. It wasn't the context. He, he made this promise in connection with something else that he said. There is a context to this promise, and that context is, in fact, the Great Commission. The command that Jesus gives to us to go out into the world and make disciples. And the reason why this is important is because many of us will absolutely, without question, embrace and grab a hold of and hold on to the promise that Jesus gives us to be present with us in our lives. We will, we will look at what Jesus says here in the text and we will say that that promise is for us. It belongs to us. That Jesus is talking about all Christians, including all of us. When Jesus says, I'm going to be with you, that means me and you. But then, many of us Christians will then try to separate this verse from its context and the command that Jesus also gives to the disciples here and, and, and say that, that we're not called to be all in and on mission for Christ. There are many people who will deny either explicitly by their own words or by, by their, their actions or lack of action that they are called to take part in the Great Commission or the making of disciples. They will say, you know, Jesus, yes, is, is with me, but no, I am not called to that. In fact, some I've even heard say that that part of the Great Commission is a commandment that was made only for the, the apostles at the time. But that's not, that's not how it works. The promise for Jesus to be with us is connected with the command for us to go and make disciples. You cannot separate the two. Jesus commands 
all of us to make disciples. And in light of that command, he promises to be with us. He promises to be there. He promises to strengthen us to carry out our mission. Number two, we also talked about last week that you and me, we were not called by God right, for ourselves. We were called by God to be on mission for Christ. All of us were called to be all in. Every single one of us. As we said, you were not saved simply for yourself. Yes, your salvation, it certainly involves you. And it certainly benefits you greatly. But it isn't ultimately about you. It is about God. God saved you for God because he's the one that created you. And God saved you for his glory because everything he does, he always does for his glory. And God saved you for his plan and his purposes because God always has a plan and a purpose for everything that he does, which means he has a plan and a purpose for you. And this plan and the purpose, as we talked about, is to participate in the mission of Christ, which is the mission to save souls. And it came, you know, Christ came into the world on a mission. And that mission was, was not to make people, you know, uh, happy in the respect of they're going to have a pain-free, problem-free life. His mission was not to make people rich, though we have heard some people say the opposite. His mission was not to make sure that everybody has a healthy self-esteem and is always smiling. That wasn't the reason why he came. No, his mission was to save sinners. It was to rescue people from the penalty and the presence and the power of their sin. And that's the mission that, that we as followers are also called to. Now, if you, were here last, if you weren't here last week, we covered a lot of ground on this particular subject. There's a lot of pieces to this, and I want to encourage you to take some time this week to go back and listen to uh, that part if you missed it, um, because it'll answer a lot of questions about the mission of Christ, and it will certainly deal with the common objections that people throw up when, it's, when we say that they're supposed to be on a mission for Christ. And you can listen to that by either going to our church website or our SoundCloud page. The addresses for both of those are in the bulletin. But the mission of Christ... The reason why he came to earth is to save sinners. And that is the mission that we were all called to. As John Wesley said, you have one business on earth to save souls. Now the question then, if that's the truth, then what naturally follows is, is what does that look like? How, how do we participate then? If, that, if that's our mission, then how do we participate in the mission of Christ? How do we get involved in saving souls? Because the fact is, you and I are not Jesus which means we're not going to die to save another person. You know, we're not going to have a sacrificing, atoning death for someone else. We're not going to live a perfect, sinless life that the law demands so that we can hand down to someone else the righteousness they're going to need to stand before God. So obviously, Christ's part in this mission and our part in this mission are going to be different. Christ died and rose again, making it possible for people to be saved and have a relationship with, Christ, with God. That was, that was his part, right? That's the part that he does. So then what, what part do we play? How do we participate in this mission? How do, we, how do we get on mission to save souls? Well, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. What, what does being on mission look like for, for us, collectively and, and individually? And understand, this is a really big question, and it'll probably take the rest of this series to fully unpack and, and completely flesh out but today, we're really going to kind of go right to the basics, and we're going to look at, at what Jesus actually says about the subject and, and how that applies then to us, again, corporately and individually. So, so in, in the book of Matthew, chapter 28, Jesus lays out for his disciples and, and all of us the framework, really the framework of our mission. He gives us an outline of what we're supposed to do. He lays out for us the details and the parameters of the mission that will kind of guide our actions from here forward. And he does that in the part of the scripture known as the Great Commission. Now, the words Great Commission don't actually themselves appear in the text. Right? It's not Jesus didn't say, hey, here's your Great Commission. But it does accurately describe what Jesus is, is doing here and what he's talking about. In fact, the word commission can be defined as an authorization or a command to act in a prescribed manner or perform prescribed acts. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He authorizes his followers, and he commands his followers to do something very specific. He gives us direct orders for, for, for us to follow here. So it is a commission, right? 
And the scope of the commission is what makes it great because the scope of this commission isn't just your household. It isn't just your neighborhood. It isn't just the, the, the community you live in. It is the entire world. It is a truly great commission. It is a gigantic commission. And in the great commission, Jesus outlines for us the duties and the responsibilities that we are to operate under and to strive under in order to be on mission for Christ. And we find this great commission again in Matthew 28 and in verse 16. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee. Now, there's a point, there's a reason why there's eleven and not twelve. If you'll remember, this is post-resurrection for Jesus Christ. That means Judas has already betrayed Jesus and by this point has already committed suicide. So now there's only eleven. So the eleven went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now the first thing that's important, I think, for you and I to notice before we really talk specifics about the mission itself is the root and the foundation of our mission. What is the mission actually built on? What is it that compels us into this mission? What is, what's the driving force? Right? What is it here in, in, in these words that actually bids us to do this? And the answer is very simply the authority of Jesus Christ. That way, that's what makes it binding on our lives. It is the authority of Jesus. Our mission in the world around us is rooted in the authority of Christ himself. Notice it says, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. All authority has been granted to Christ. Not, not, not just some of it, not, not most of it, not 99.9% .9 of it, all of it. All authority in heaven all authority on the earth, all authority over every single bit of creation. That means over the animals, over people, over physics, over biology, over history, over the future, over every tiny molecule that exists in the universe is under the authority of Christ. Christ has authority over everything. And this is really important for us to understand the Great Commission is founded on the absolute authority of Christ to give us this kind of a commission. Because if you think about it, there are a lot of people in your life who will say things to you and try to tell you what you have to do and what you should do, but have no authority over you. Because if someone is going to give you direction and tell you how to live your life and how to act, then they should have some authority over you. Like someone comes into your office or go to your work, and they just walk up and they start telling you how to do your job and how you should behave and giving you direction. And the first thing you're going to say is, who are you and what authority do you think you have over me? Right? That's the question that, that we're going to ask. And if you're a kid, right, if you're a kid playing on the playground and you're doing what you're doing and some, some adult walks up to you and starts telling you what to do, what's the first thing you're going to say? You ain't my mama, Right? Because only mama's got authority over me, not you, right? If someone's going to give you a direct order, if someone's going to give you a mission, if someone's going to, to change the course and the nature of your life, they need to have authority to do so. And Jesus has that authority. After his death and burial and resurrection, he was given the authority by God the Father, the supreme authority. In fact, in other words, Jesus was given total sovereignty. And this is an important fact for two reasons. The first one is theological. The second one is, is practical. The first reason is about who Jesus is, theologically speaking. And then the second is about what it means for us, practically speaking. So let's begin with the, the theology part. Christ the Son was given all authority by God the Father, which means Christ is completely sovereign. Which helps us to understand the inescapable and the essential truth about who Christ is, the truth about his very nature and the nature of the gospel itself. The reason why he can have all authority and he is completely sovereign is because Jesus is God the Son. Jesus is God in the flesh. The reason why Jesus has all authority is because he is God incarnate. The foundation 
of this text, the foundation of the gospel itself, the foundation of the Great Commission, and even the foundation of salvation is the identity of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not some created being. He is not simply some exalted man who did a lot to please God. Christ is God in the flesh. That is the foundation of his authority. Jesus is God, which is really the widespread and compelling testimony throughout the entire New Testament. And in John chapter 1, we were told from the very beginning, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And if you happen to have a question about who the Word is, John tells us in verse 14 and says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The deity of Christ, the fact that he is God in the flesh, is the absolute, established, and essential truth found throughout the New Testament, and it's the foundation of the gospel itself. God himself came to save you. In fact, that truth is, is, some, is that, that you cannot actually understand the gospel and receive the truth of the gospel and actually be saved by the gospel unless you embrace this truth, the identity of Christ. Jesus is God in the flesh. God himself came to rescue you. You cannot be saved by a human being or another created being. You must be rescued by God himself. And Jesus is just that, God himself. That's why he's sovereign. That's why he's in complete control. And even his followers at this time understood that. In fact, we're told that his, his followers worshipped him. It says in verse 16, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. This is important because this is not just some group of guys. This is a group of devout Jewish men. And Jewish men were only allowed to worship one person, and that was God himself. But these men, when they encountered the risen Jesus Christ, they fell to their knees, and they gave Jesus the worship that's due only to God. And the thing that you need to see in the text is he didn't stop them. That's an important thing for us to understand. He doesn't tell them, don't do that. Because other men in the Bible, they do exactly that. There have been men in the Bible who have been worshipped by other people, and they'd say, don't do that. Peter, Paul, and even Silas had people come and try to worship them, and every single time they're like, stop, don't do that. We're not God. We are just mere men. Even an angel in heaven, in the book of Revelation, was, was worshipped by John, right? and, and the angel says, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant just like you. But notice in the text, Jesus doesn't do that. He, he receives their worship. He allows them to worship him. And the reason they do that is because he is God in the flesh. And that is why he has authority over them and authority over us. And with that authority, he commands them to go make disciples of all the nations. And he tells them to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this right here is a verse that's also important because it also speaks to who Jesus is and to who God is. You see, Jesus here in Matthew, he actually uses very precise language. He says to baptize all these other disciples in the name, singular, of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, plural. I don't know if you've ever really noticed that before. But he didn't say just in the name of Jesus or in the name of God. But he says in the name, singular, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, which is plural. You see, there's, there's an important theological truth here. The name here in this text reveals that not only is, is Christ divine or God himself, it also reveals the triune nature of God, that God is a trinity. There is one name, there is one God who exists in three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They are all one God and are one essence, but three distinct persons. And if that's something that you're wrestling with, we don't have time to fully dissect it, but we have taught on this many times. If you want to uh, give me your email address, I'll be happy to send you a couple of messages on that and talk with you personally. I always find that when it comes to the Trinity, that's something that, yes, it's a mystery to me, but the greatest mystery is how can a holy and righteous God love a guy like me? 
That, for me, is the real mystery. But that right there is the theological facts. Jesus is God in the flesh. Now let's talk about the practical stuff then. Because Jesus is God in the flesh, and because he is, is, has all authority, what that means for us then is he is he's the boss. He is the king. He is the authority, which, which means what he says goes. What he says is the law. What he says is the absolute truth. And what he says... Right? When he says to do something, then we should be, yes, Lord, and, and do just that. So when he says, love your neighbor as yourself, then we should say, yes, Lord. When he says that you need to forgive as you have been forgiven, you're like, yes, Lord. When he says that you need to love your enemies, you're, yes, Lord. When he says you need to pick up your cross daily and deny yourself and follow me, you need to say, yes, Lord. Jesus has all authority over us. And because of that, we are to do the things that he calls us to do and follow where he leads. And the Great Commission is where he's leading. It's a calling from Jesus to all of us. We are all, every one of us, called to it. And we are called to be on mission then to make disciples. That's our part of the mission of Christ, is to make disciples. That's what he says here in Matthew. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Church family, I, I really think that this is the part that we really need to lean in and really hear together. This is the part, I think, that, like, where we just need to set aside kind of all of our preconceived ideas and maybe all of our you know, personal preferences, and, and, and we need to hear this. You, and I mean all of you, and me, and every person who calls himself by the name of Jesus Christ is called by Christ himself to be on mission by making disciples. The Great Commission is is both the command to make disciples and it is also the promise that Christ will be with you. Both of those are for you and for me. You are called to go out into the world and make disciples. And if that prospect scares you, remember Jesus said and he promised that he will be with you. He will strengthen you. He, will, he has promised to guide you. You are not alone on your mission. Jesus will be there with you as you go out and make disciples, which is exactly what you're called to do. So then, I guess the next question is, what does it mean then to make disciples? What does that actually look like? Because we hear it all the time, you need to go make disciples. What does that, what does that mean? How's that, how do we practically get there? Well, we need to actually look at this question from two perspectives. First is the big picture strategic perspective and then the second is the ground level you know up close and personal tactical perspective and so from the big picture we need to understand that what Jesus is communicating Jesus said that we need to go therefore make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all I command you and there's certainly a lot here, and we can do a whole sermon series on just this topic, but there are three components here I think that we all need to pay attention to. Three things that, that help us to make disciples. A person who follows Jesus, which is what a disciple is, a, a follower of Christ. And so the three major components of making a disciple begin with evangelism or saving souls. The fact is, a person cannot follow Jesus Christ. They cannot hear his voice. They cannot go where he wants them to go until they put their trust in him. A person cannot, is not going to, 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 to pick up their cross and follow Jesus daily until they actually hear and receive the good news of the gospel. And so even though the word evangelism is not here in the text, and Jesus didn't say evangelism, it's clearly implicated here. We are to make converts to the faith. And so it means evangelism. Because you cannot make disciples without sharing the gospel and leading them to faith in Christ. That is step one. It, that, that you can't go beyond that until you do that. And what I want you to understand is that means all of you too. Again, if something makes your heart flutter or makes you get butterflies in your stomach as a prospect of talking to people, I understand that. But you are called 
to evangelism. Whether you like it or not or want to believe it or not, you are called in your own unique way, the way God has designed you, to be an evangelist. You're called to go out and share the hope of Christ with those in the world around you. That is part of the mission. And I understand that there are probably going to be some people that are really gifted at this. There are probably some people that they are really good and more comfortable with this. There are those who, who are going to go out and reach a lot of people. You know, and, and you're going to see some people and you're going to think, oh, they're going to be great at this. And what you're going to have to understand is they all have their own personal walk. Like for me, I am completely comfortable talking in front of a large group of people but you get me alone in, around strangers and I become an introvert like that. Like, I'm cool not talking to people. I mean, that's just how I'm wired up. I mean, like, the age of technology was actually built for me, I think, because I don't have to, I can go to town and put my face on the screen and not, and not see anyone else. I have to fight against that, right? But all of us are called to this. And so every single one of us are to be involved in evangelism and sharing the hope of Christ. That's number one. The second thing is, is baptism. He says to, make, to baptize them. Right? That's the second part of making disciples. Once they believe, they need to be baptized. Now, you may not be called to actually administer the believer's baptism, right? but understand what baptism actually is. Baptism is a picture of a believer identifying personally with the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. It's an outward symbol of an inward reality. It symbolizes two things, that the believer is publicly identifying, that they identify with Jesus, and that they also identify publicly with part of the body of Christ, saying, I belong to a family, the family of God. Baptism is about a person's inclusion into the body of Christ. Once a person puts their trust in Jesus, the next step for them is to get plugged into the family of God. The Bible knows nothing about Lone Ranger Christians. There has never been in the history of all the church a successful Christian who lives by themselves and is not part of a local church. That's the next step. We are to help them to participate in the corporate worship and to help them to, to grow in fellowship with other believers. And so the second step is baptism or the inclusion of the believer in the body of Christ. And number three is teaching. Jesus says to make disciples, baptize them, and then teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. You see, it's about training. Making disciples is about teaching and training people how to follow Jesus. It is about teaching them what the commands of Christ are and then teaching them to actually follow them by word and by example, which is ultimately includes them going out and making more disciples. That's the thing that I don't think we always realize is the big picture of the Great Commission is that it's about multiplication. Jesus doesn't say just go out and make converts and then leave them there. He didn't say, go out and, and, and save souls and win souls for me and then just invite them to the church. Right? He says, go out and evangelize the lost, get them plugged in the body of Christ, and then train them up to follow me, which then includes them also then learning how to go out and evangelize the lost and helping them to get plugged into the body of Christ and train them to follow me and so on and so on and so on. That's the plan behind the Great Commission. It's about multiplication. It's about believers who go out into the world to make other believers who do the exact same thing. That's the picture of the Great Commission. That is the strategic plan. Now, from the ground level, though, there are a few things I think we need to understand about making disciples. First of all, discipleship ultimately is about a person-to-person -person relationship. This is important for us to understand. Discipleship is not the church as an organization discipling people. Discipleship is about individuals in the church connecting with other individuals outside of the church and helping them to know Christ, getting them plugged in to the church, and then training them to follow Jesus. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying here. Because the church as a living body, as a collective organism, certainly has a responsibility to equip the saints. Read Ephesians 4. It does have a responsibility to proclaim the truth of the gospel. Read 1 Timothy. It has a responsibility to teach sound doctrine and build up leaders in the church. But making disciples is not simply the responsibility of the church staff, which is really what a lot of people think about when they think about the church. They think about the people that are employed by the church or who volunteer at the church. But discipleship is not simply the responsibility of pastors or deacons or elders or, or the, the lay leaders. Discipleship is the responsibility of everybody, of us 
all. Because discipleship is not supposed to be institutional. It's supposed to be personal. Jesus personally discipled 12 men and changed the world. 12 men he discipled, and then they went out and discipled people, and they went out and discipled people, and on and on and on to today. Again, so the important... This is important because we live in a culture that says that, that my job is simply to occasionally invite people to church and then the rest is up to you, Pastor. Right? Or it's up to the deacons or the, or the children's church you know, teachers. And don't get me wrong, right? Everybody here is sold out to make disciples. And we are here to help. We want to help, but we cannot, we cannot effectively train and teach them all. We can't reach them all. In fact, that is why that in the 80 years this church has existed that there has never been a larger sanctuary built. That's the reason right there. Because if you think about this, the members, if the members of this church over the years had did exactly what Christ has called us to do, the vast majority of this, the people in this community would not be Christians in name only. Because that's what we have. We have a community full of people who say that they believe in Jesus. They don't live that way. If the members of this church were all in and did what Christ was calling us all individually to do, we could do five services here and fill up all the seats, and they could still fill up every other church in this community, and there still wouldn't be enough room for the people who truly love Jesus if we actually did what Jesus calls us to do. But for some reason, our culture has taught us, we brought in this idea that, that your job is occasionally invite your neighbor and your coworker which, I mean, you should do. Don't get me wrong. But then the rest is really up to me and the deacons, right? That, 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 that we're the ones that are called to get them plugged in. That we're the ones that are called to, to train them up. Discipleship isn't institutional. It's supposed to be person to person. And the discipleship is also about us corporately and individually passing along the faith to someone else. This is, this is the important metaphor, I think, that we, we all need to wrap our heads around. Discipleship is, isn't a formal event or a seminar. Right? Discipleship is personally passing along the truth that you have been given. God has entrusted you with the truth and you're to pass that along. You've been handed down the gift of faith. You need to pass that along. You have personally been passed down the gospel of Jesus Christ and you're to pass that along. It's one person to the next, one generation to the next. And so being on mission means personally being all in to make disciples. Being on mission means selling out to do the important work God has called us to do, which is, again, evangelism, which is telling people about Jesus Christ, baptism, or helping people to get plugged into the body of Christ, and then teaching, personally teaching other people to follow Christ, teaching them to follow where Jesus leads them. Because the bottom line truth is this. There are only two phases of the Christian life. You are either being discipled or you're discipling someone else. You're either being discipled or you are on mission discipling other people. That is the two phases of, of the Christian life. Now, don't get me wrong. You can actually do both at the same time. In fact, it happens a lot. In fact, the process of discipleship and training really doesn't fully end. Because all of us are called to grow in the knowledge and understanding of God. We all can learn from a mentor in the faith. And then we are also all called to pass along everything we learn. And we're constantly learning, which means there's more and more to pass along. But the overarching point that I want you to understand is this. The Bible, in the Bible, there is no such thing as a stagnant Christian. There is, there, there, it's just not, it doesn't exist there is no sense in the Bible that you get saved, you learn about Jesus, you tell all the people in your immediate circle about Jesus, you invite 10 of them to church, and then you simply spend the rest of your life in a chair listening to hymns and listening to sermons and then going to potlucks. Right? That's not what Christianity is. The Christian walk is a lifetime mission. It is a lifetime mission to do the work that Christ has called you to do, and he has work he's called you to do. As the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, he says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not the result of works, 
so that no one can boast. So your faith is all about what God in Christ has already done for you. You can't make God happy by your efforts, right? But there's a reason why he saved you, and he says, for we are his workmanship. He handcrafted us. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. Remember, you were not saved for you. You were saved for God and his glory and his purpose. And his purpose is all about you walking in the works that he's prepared for you to do. And, and what he's prepared for you to do is to go out into the world and make disciples of the nations. That's what he's called you to do. That's what he's called me to do. He has called all of us to be all in for this mission. And then he promises to always be with us. Now, I realize that this can be overwhelming. <laughs> because, first of all, this is a lot. Right? But the other reason is because is we're not all in the same place. We're not all in our same spot in our walk with God. We're not even all in the same state of mind. We don't have all the same circumstances of our lives. Some of us might be brand new believers. Some of you might have been believers for decades and decades and decades and decades. Some of you have been discipled very carefully by someone who was thoughtful and taught you. And others of you have been simply taught to say a prayer and then come to church. Some of you might even be on fire, like you're excited. I can't wait to, to share the hope of Christ with the world. Some of you are like, please don't make me do this. Some of you might not even actually ever put your faith in Jesus before in your life. Some of you maybe have just prayed a prayer when you're like six years old and thought that you were a believer, but nothing ever really changed in your life, and you realize you're not actually having a relationship with, with, with Jesus. Again, we're all different in our walk with God, and we all have, have different needs. And so, we, so how we apply this text to our own individual lives is going to be different for each one of us. And because of that, I would like to walk you through from the beginning how you can apply this to your own individual life. And understand, I am not concerned with you knowing everything that we're talking about here today. I'm not concerned with you memorizing the outline. I'm not concerned with all, you remembering all the points and the details. What I'm concerned about is that you identify where you are in your walk with God, and then you decide and commit to taking the next step. We want to help you to take the next step in your walk with Jesus so that you can begin to be all in for the mission of Christ. And so we begin always with the very first step. And the first step is to receive Christ. If you have not made Jesus the Lord of your life, then the rest of the mission that we're talking about is actually irrelevant to you. It has really no point to you. Because you have a bigger problem to face. See, if you've not trusted Christ, you are still in your sin, which means you're not part of God's family, which means you are not even a friend of God. In fact, you are an enemy of God. I don't know how to say it any clearer than that. And the, the anger and the wrath of God, because you're an enemy, is aimed at you. And it's like, and his holy justice is like a 10,000-pound weight that's just hanging over your head, and you have no idea when it will fall. And if that doesn't change in your life, then one day you will step out of this world and you will stand before that God who is holy and perfect and righteous in every possible way and he will judge your sin and you will be found guilty and you will rightly be sent and spend eternity in the darkness of hell separated from God forever and ever and ever. But it does not have to be that way because as we know, God so loved the world. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that means you too. God came so that man can, God came and became a man so that he can walk in our shoes, identify with our hurts, understand what we're going through, and then perfectly live a life that we couldn't live. And then willingly he went to the cross and was tortured and killed and paid a penalty that we couldn't pay. And not only that, his righteous life, his perfect life, he gives to us. He bestows upon us. He grants us his righteousness so that we now have the right to, to, to be with God. And it effectively removes his wrath from us. And even more than that, we're not only forgiven of our sins, we are welcomed 
in the presence of God. We are reconciled to God in a relationship. We become part of God's family. He is Abba, Father to us. We become part of his beloved family. We're one of his children. Christian, if there's something you remember day to day, you are a child of God. And all of this is available to you today if you repent and turn to Jesus and trust him to save you. If you believe that Jesus came in the flesh and died for your sins and that he rose from the dead, proving that he can save you from your sins, if you believe that, you will be saved. In fact, it's as easy as ABC. A is admit. Admit that you're a sinner. That's the first thing. You will not experience the need. You will not know why you need Jesus until you understand what your problem is. And your problem is you're a sinner. Admit it. I'm a sinner. I'm a broken sinner. And I can't fix it. I can't make it right. There's nothing I can do. I can't do enough good stuff to, to overcome all the stains of sin in my life. So admit it. And then B is believe. Believe the gospel. Believe what the Bible says about Jesus. That he was born of a virgin. That he, that he is God come to earth. That he, he believed that he lived a perfect life. And that he died for your sin. And believed that God rose him from the dead three days later proving that he can do what he promised to do, which is to bring you safely home if you will trust in him. And then C is confession. Not confession to me, but confess or declare with your mouth that Jesus is not some person, that Jesus is God, that he is the Lord, which means he's the Lord of your life. And that you are willingly saying yes to follow him. If you have not trusted in Christ, that's the first step. Receive Jesus and be saved. And, and if you have questions about how that works, or you'd like to talk to someone and have somebody help you walk through that and show you through the scriptures how that works, right? then come see me or you know, one of the deacons after the, the service and we'll be happy to talk with you. Or maybe you're just like, I'm really shy, I'm very private, then do me a favor, just get one of those information request cards, put your name, contact information on there, and just put in there, I want to know more about salvation. And we'll get in touch with you and we will be able to to help you take that step. That's your first step. The second step is to identify with the body of Christ through baptism. If you are a believer in Christ, the next step for you is to go public. Now, the thing is, from one of the, the, the strangest phenomenon I've ever seen in my life has been, you ask people, are you ready to get baptized? They're like, well, I'm just waiting for the right time. Or, you know, I just really feel like I need to get my life cleaned up a little bit more. You know, like, like, like you really need to get cleaned up more to, to get baptized. Jesus already did the hard part. He already saved you from your sins, right? So the thing is, the Bible doesn't have an understanding of this, this kind of like waiting for the right time. In fact, the Bible, in, in most instances, people believe and then they're baptized like the same day. There's like not a waiting period. Like you need to attend church like six months and make sure you really, really are going to be here if we're going to baptize you. The thing is, is, it's always about, I believe in Jesus, and next I want to identify that I believe with Jesus in public and with my faith. That's the next step. And so if you're a believer, whether you're a brand new believer or whether you're someone who's been a believer a long time and just been like procrastinating to do this whole baptism thing, and you're ready to take that next step, again, see me after the service or, you know what, take one of them cards out, name, contact information, say, I want to be baptized, and then we can, we can take care of that as soon as next, next Sunday. And the next step is to become a member of our local church. We have a couple of people that are going to do that today. The fact is that, that you need to belong to a church family. Again, I've heard people say, I don't need to belong. You don't have to actually be part of a physical church to be saved, but you cannot be an effective, growing Christian without a, a local body of believers. Right? I understand people who attend church for years, you know, they, they, will, they will actually come to a church and, and, and kind of be a part of a church, but they just say, I just, I don't know if I should belong or be a member of the church. Membership of the local church actually is, is an important thing because, because membership is a commitment. It's not just like, hey, I can come and go anytime I want to, like Taco Bell, right? This is, this is more of a commitment. It's a, it's a family that's why, why you join a church. It's a commitment to be a part of a local body of believers. You are committing yourself to be involved in their lives and to serve and love the group of people that God has assembled in your life. And what you're saying is, I'm going to do life with you. Right? I'm, not, I, I'm not a flake. I'm going to be here. I'm here to stay. 
Yes, I'm here for the long haul. Yes, I'm all in for the vision of First Baptist Church. Yes, I am here to grow with you. And so if you'd like to become a member of the church, again, come see me or either fill out one of those information request cards and we will make a point to talk to you. Now, the final step that I want to talk about is either you get discipled or start discipling others. If you've not been discipled, then you need to connect with someone to help you with that. And we can, we can certainly help you with that. And if you have been discipled and you have you a, a, a Christian who has a veteran in the, who's been a veteran in the faith, then you need to be actively discipling other people by sharing your faith, by helping others get plugged into the body of Christ, and then by training your fellow believers to follow Jesus. Now this is where I think I can give you a little bit more help and see, let you see where First Baptist Church is going because in the past we've not really focused on this part of it so much. We've always, the church has always been about decisions and, and, and making confessions of faith, but it's not always been about, now let's take the next step. Discipleship and training people here to follow Jesus is something that we are committed to focus on. And our commitment is to help you grow in the area, this area, and, and we have developed, um, we're beginning to develop you know, a comprehensive d- discipleship program. There's a lot that we're working on. And we're committed to, to provide you the tools and the training necessary to help you become people to get discipled and help you to be people that can disciple co- and confidently other people. And so in the coming months, there's going to be a lot more for us to talk about in this subject. And it, uh, but, but what I want to share with you this morning, just a couple resources that we have that we've put in place to help you actually begin to grow. And the first one is small group Bible studies. We have a lot of them. We have small group Bible studies almost every day of the week. In fact, when Richard's going to be gone for a couple weeks, so two of his studies are, are uh, going to be gone down until April, I mean August. Um, but when, when we have all of our studies going, we have, we have Bible study every day of the week except for Tuesday. And so it's our encouragement that everyone get plugged into a small group. And the reason why you should be plugged into a small group is, one, is it's an opportunity for you to grow in your knowledge and understanding of God. Number two, it helps you to build closer relationships with the members of your church. You get connected with people who are living the life right alongside with you, getting the encouragement you need, the love and the support that you need. The second thing, the other resource that we have recently rolled out is a one-on-one basic training discipleship program. It is a six-week, person-to-person Bible study, complete with a workbook, and it is foundational, foundational Christianity. It's like the basic stuff that all Christians should have a handle on. And we've had a lot of great success with this, particularly in the women's ministry. We have, uh, Diana Wise has been discipling several uh, ladies individually, and they now are growing in confidence in, in their faith. It's a great way to begin to, to, it's a great way to be trained to follow Christ, and it's also a very easy way for you to begin to connect with someone and train others and pass along your faith to the next generation. Then again, we have more tools and more Bible studies and more classes um, that we're, 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 we're working on to, to roll out this next year. But with that, you can take the next step in your walk to commit to either becoming discipled. Maybe you're just like, hey, I've been a Christian a long time, but no one's actually discipled me. If that's you and you want to like actually take that step, again, see me after or put an information request card in. Or the other step would be is I want to begin to actually do my part. I want to connect with someone. I want to, I want to share the love of Christ that I have with someone. I want to help them begin to really walk in that. And if that's you, again, so hopefully I will have for all different reasons, a bunch of information request cards coming today. Now, here's the thing. Now we know all of this. Again, there's, there's a lot here. I realize that. Now we know that, that this is what Christ is calling to you. God in the flesh has the authority to call you to take part in this mission to save sinners to fulfill the Great Commission. Now that, that you know that this is the will and the plan of God for your life, and this is how you glorify God in your life, is to, is to follow his instructions here. Now that you know this, there's really, again, only one question today that you need to answer. And that answer is, am I all in or am I not? 
Again, my encouragement is, if you are all in, praise the Lord, we will continue to walk this path together. If you're not, I'll continue to ask you to get alone with God and just ask him, why? Why am I struggling with this, Lord? Why am I not all in? What am I scared of? What am I afraid of? And then again, you might not get the answer this week, but, but bring those questions and bring those answers again next week as we continue this conversation. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, it is the cry of my heart that you would raise up a people in this church. A people in this church, Lord, that will go out and do exactly this. Beginning with me, Lord, that you would tear down whatever fears that might exist, that you would tear down whatever excuses I might have, that you would tear down whatever, whatever little reasons that get in the way that all of us, Lord, would sell out to be disciple makers here in this church. That you'd raise up a group of people in here that are so in love with you and so sold out for the cause of Christ, they will go out into this community and that we will absolutely preach the gospel to every creature here in this town and then we will continue then to preach it further and further out, Lord God. We are praying, Lord God, for revival in this little church that we know that it begins with us following through on the mission you called us to, which is the Great Commission. Revival can't happen unless people hear the gospel. And let us, Lord God, be bold and share it. And let us not be afraid or intimidated or scared. And then let us then follow through, Lord, and get people plugged into this church or another Bible-believing church and help us, Lord, to disciple, to not just leave people alone, but then to walk them through how to follow you and help them become disciple-makers too, Lord. We are looking to you, Lord God, to bring a mighty work here in this community. We are praying for this town. Jesus is the hope for all that ails us in this community. And so I pray, Father God, again, that you would raise up the people in this church who will be the catalyst for that change. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.